If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for March 29th, 2020. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. Our other podcast is the Individual One podcast, which most directly deals with all the political and Donald Trump-related news. I urge you to check that out as well. You can find a link to that web, to that uh, podcast at our website, www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. Uh, because uh, this weekend is my birthday, yesterday was my 53rd birthday, uh, we're going to do, uh, I guess, what we it's kind of a biannual tradition of an Ask John Anything segment of the program. Uh, the Ask John Anything segment has kind of become a, a very infamous element of my career because the Ask John Anything segment is why I got fired very dramatically in a massive news story in Louisville, Kentucky, many, many years ago in the early 2000s. And we've kind of uh, half-jokingly, half-seriously kept it going during the podcast. And so about twice a year, and I think we usually do it around my birthday, uh, is one of the times in which we do it, I open up uh, both my Twitter and my Facebook pages to any reasonable question, any logical, reasonable, appropriate question, I will do my best to answer. And so... Uh, about a day or so ago, I uh, elicited questions from people who follow me on Twitter and Facebook. And as usual, I got bombarded with a lot of responses. And I will do my best to answer each and every one of them during this particular broadcast. Before I get into the specific questions, which are uh, always very interesting, a couple of thoughts on uh, how we're hanging in during the uh, coronavirus quarantine uh, so far, all members of the Ziegler family are still accounted for. No one has killed anyone else, although we're getting closer to that uh, day. Uh, Grace Ziegler has been doing a remarkable job, in my opinion. Her mom would disagree with me. Uh, but considering that she's almost eight years old, uh, she was starting to hit her stride in first grade. Now, all of a sudden, she's taken out of school. Uh, she's taken away from her friends that she was finally starting to make. And uh, now she's cooped up with her little sister 24 uh, hours a day and, and can't even go to the park across the street. Uh, I think Grace has been doing a, a fantastic job. 
however, uh, as is, of course, I'm sure all across the country and the world, the stress levels are starting to, to ramp up. Uh, and, and it's starting to happen really awfully fast. Boy, that escalated quickly. Uh, no, 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 no! <laughs> that's Diana. Uh, and Diana's been not quite as good as Grace, but that could be just because she's about to turn three, which we have found to be a, a very dangerous uh, time period, more than the terrible twos. We, we think that the from two to three is is really the, the worst part of, of uh, having a kid. But Diana's still doing very, very well. My wife, who has been amazing, my wife has just been absolutely amazing since the beginning of this. She got us stockpiled on food well before anyone else because she was anticipating a quarantine. She's been doing a great job of keeping the kids active. Uh, you know, she, we're, she's been undergoing personal stress because she broke her arm last year and it did not heal properly. So she's still having to go through uh, surgeries and therapy. And I mean, this has just been a really horrible horrible time for everybody but specifically for my wife and in the last 24 to 40 hour eight hours uh she's starting to lose it it's starting to all fall apart uh and um she tried her best to hold it together during my birthday she didn't you know do a great job of that but she <laughs> but she did better than i deserved i mean she is way better than i deserve uh, and uh, we would be lost without her, but, uh, but it, it's now starting to get bad. And part of it's going, getting bad because there's more circumstances piling on the old when it rains, it pours scenario. Uh, last night, we found out that Grace has a, uh, I guess you would call it a medical issue that it's not very serious, but it's going to cause a major problem uh, for the household. And it, it was really kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, and Allison is under great stress. She is even, and I'm sure this is not uh, unusual, she's convinced herself that she might have the coronavirus, even though she's not ex exhibiting any of the actual symptoms, uh, but she's convinced that she has the coronavirus. I have told her uh, that it's possible that she has the coronavirus, only that she's the first case where the coronavirus has, has crawled up someone's butthole uh, because... <laughs> She has completely lost it. And she would be the first person to acknowledge and agree that uh, she she has something crawling up her butthole. Uh, and it's probably stress. It's not the coronavirus. And again, it's understandable, and I get it, but let me give you a good example. So this morning, uh, I, I drive uh, from outside of Los Angeles into Los Angeles where we, we tape this, the Sunday uh, podcast. And a friend of mine from Georgetown texts me that CBS, because they don't have any NCAA basketball games, uh, is rebroadcasting the very famous 1985 NCAA basketball championship game between Georgetown and Villanova. Now, this is one of the, the seminal moments of my, uh, you know, my youth. My, I was a senior in high school. I was heading to Georgetown but living in Philadelphia. I was actually rooting for Villanova in that game, even though I was heading – to Georgetown, uh, and so this was a huge moment in my life, and I'd loved, I haven't been able to, you know, I don't think they've ever rebroadcast the actual game since it happened, so I call my wife, <laughs> I call my wife uh, from uh, outside the studio, and I ask her, hey, can you tape CBS, and let's just say uh, it did not go well, it didn't, it did not, the, the request was not <laughs> handled in a way that was particularly uh, kind. Boy, 
That escalated quickly. No, I, I was basically told to go fuck myself. Uh, so I don't know whether or not the Georgetown Villanova game from 1985 got recorded or not. But I'm, when I get home and I look on the DVR, I'm not going to complain either way. <laughs> I can assure you of that. So th- that's the situation at home. We're we are safe, but we are under enor- like everyone else under enormous stress. And uh, I don't know how we're going to do it. I mean, I-, I do think that the biggest problem here, and this is getting more serious, I don't know how society is going to be able to maintain this for all that much longer. I really don't. I think we are uh, we're getting very close to the threshold, especially when there's no real light at the end of the tunnel as far as the shutdown of life. So uh, that that's, that's my experience. I don't know how other people are handling it, but there's no way we're going to make this another three or four weeks. Hey, John, real quick, before you get into the Ask Anything portion, the crew has put a little something together for you for your birthday. Do you mind if I play it? Wow, wow Kevin, this is your first uh, appearance on the podcast. This sure is, is. This is Kevin, our producer. Sure, what, what, what do you got? This is Hello. A- not happy birthday. No, not that. Please. <laughs> no, not happy birthday. <laughs> Who's got a birthday today? Happy birthday to you! Thank you, Kevin. That was much appreciated. Uh, it's only my—it's the day after my 53rd birthday, which is a, you know one of the least celebrated, rightfully so, birthdays you could possibly have. We're just using that as an excuse to do Ask John anything. But I appreciate the the thought, and it's nice for you to make your debut appearance on the podcast. Um, uh, so, uh, with that said, let's get into Ask John anything, and I, I think I have pretty much all of the reasonable questions that were asked via Twitter and Facebook. If I somehow don't get to your question, I apologize. I'm going to start with uh, Jason, and I hesitate because this is actually a very awkward situation, but Jason is a big supporter of my work on the Penn State case, and he asks an interesting question, and if I gave you the full response, this would probably take the full hour of the podcast, but his question is, how did you end up on a reality TV dating show? And this is a, a horrendous story. Uh, but it's worth telling in, in the short version. Here's what happened. Um, I had left and essentially been fired, my contract not re- being renewed, at KFI Radio in Los Angeles. So we're in the early part of 2008, and I'm unemployed, and I have no idea what I'm going to do next because I, I really don't want to continue to talk radio. I don't even know whether or not it's possible. I'm bored, and, um, and I see an ad for a TV show, and this is really, really important. The ad was not for a reality TV dating show. It was asking for men who want to give dating or relationship advice to women. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Kind of, you know, because that's kind of what I used to do when I asked John anything. I would give dating advice, among other things. I actually think I'm pretty good at giving uh, dating advice, especially to women, because women do not understand men. Men do not understand women. Uh, and, uh, and so, okay, I thought, that's interesting. So I responded to the ad. And again, incredibly long story short, they responded back to me and said, um, I think I had put in, in my, you know, in the questionnaire, I told them I was a golfer. And they said, hey, uh, we would like you to come out to a driving range and meet this woman. And uh, I think they said, you know, give her dating relationship advice. And I thought, okay, that's a little weird, but fine, whatever. And I, I really wasn't 
uh, even thinking that much about it. It, it was not something that I, I put a lot of thought into. <laughs> In retrospect, I should have. And I said, okay, sure. So we, we made a time for me to go to this driving range to give this woman dating advice. That's what I thought was happening. Well, then a, a series of perfect storm elements came together. And one is that on the day that we were supposed to do this, I had an excruciating conversation with my grandfather, who was near death. Uh, um, essentially, uh, with, and my grandfather was the person I respected the most. I was incredibly close to him out of all the grandkids. I was his first grandkid. And we had a very, 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 very uh, special relationship. And uh, through another whole long story, uh, he was essentially telling uh, me that he was cutting me and my uh, siblings out of his will for reasons I, I can't even get into uh, here, but have to do mostly to do with family politics and the fact that my mother had been killed in a car accident many years before. And it was it was it was really gutting. I mean, it was I couldn't care less about the will part, but it was it was it was gutting. And it was also I knew where this was going to lead. I knew this was going to lead to a war, which it absolutely did uh, years and years. And the, the ramifications of which are still being felt uh, within our family. And so I, I was basically in a daze and I tried to cancel this stupid uh, reality TV show taping, but they refused to take no for an answer. And they even picked me up in a van. And normally, you know, I'm a go-screw-yourself kind of guy. But I was completely in a daze. And for some reason, I just went along uh, and I said, okay, fine. What's this going to hurt? Uh, and, and stupidly, I should never have taken a ride from them. Because essentially, and, they, and in retrospect, it's obvious what was happening. They were effectively kidnapping me. I mean, that, that is not an exaggeration because I have no way of getting home. So they, they take me in a van to this, this driving range, and it becomes clear this is not a situation where I'm there to uh, give dating advice. I'm on a date. They, they're putting me on a date with this woman, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I have no way to get out of this because I don't have a car, uh, and I'm at a driving range. Uh, and, and so um, I, I, my instincts were, okay, I need to get out of this. Uh, but again, I'm in this daze. And part of what's influencing my thinking is this is such a rinky-dink operation. I'm thinking there's no way this is ever going to air. So I'm, I'm thinking, all right, just figure out a way to get out of this. I, there, I, I'm, I'm, I have no interest in dating this woman. Um, I'm actually dating uh, Allison, my now wife at the time. Uh, and so this is, this is I, I want no part of this. Um, so for some reason, I decide the best way for me to get out of this is to not be a good date. Because I'm thinking that will let her down easy. She won't like me, right? So I won't have to worry about, uh, you know, I'm actually thinking that in my brain, this is the nicest way to handle this. So, so I, I basically make it so there's no way this woman's going to like me, not in an overtly jerk sort of way, but just, you know, we're, we're just totally different and there's nothing. You know, I'm, I'm just looking to get out of this. And this thing goes on and on forever and ever, and then they take us to a restaurant, and again, I'm still kidnapped. So long story short, 
uh, you know, this thing is just a disaster. And uh, I, I'm thinking, well, thank God, at least that's never going to air. And I never hear anything about it. I never hear anything about it until like the day of or the day after I go on the Today Show to do an interview with Matt Lauer about my Sarah Palin interview, which is the only interview that she ever really did after the 2008 election, and it's making huge news. And all of a sudden, wham, right when I go on the Today Show, this, and I would love to know how this happened. I have no, I will never know, but there, there I, and I'm not a conspiracy person, but clearly this was orchestrated. All of a sudden, this ridiculously edited tape of this absurd reality show that I don't, still don't think ever actually aired. I still do not believe it ever actually aired. But someone put together a compilation of video from that day making me look like a giant asshole. Because my goal was to get the fuck out of there. That was my entire goal, and I was actually trying to not offend the woman. Um, but, of course, they can do anything they want in, edi in editing, and they made me look like a complete jackass. And someone put that online, some liberals put that online, clearly in an orchestrated effort uh, to destroy me uh, right when I went on the Today Show. So that's how it happened. For, I know this sounds crazy, but essentially I was kidnapped, and, uh, and there was a bait-and-switch, and... Because of what was going on with my grandfather, I was completely out of it. And that's the uh, the true story of what really happened with that. Uh, next question. Is the Ohio State wrestling sex abuse scandal a copy of the Penn State Sandusky case using your work? Interesting question. I actually don't think that it is. Uh, I think that it is a copy of the Larry Nasser Michigan State case, which is real. And that what they did was they just took the same concept and a couple of con artists were able to successfully manipulate the connection to Jim Jordan, the, uh, the Republican congressman, pro-Trump congressman that the media hates, and his uh, tangential connection to this situation. They used that for enough publicity so that they could get uh, other people to come forward and claim the same thing about a guy who I believe was a gay doctor who was acting inappropriately but was seen mostly as a joke at the time, and now, uh, many decades later, way after he's dead and cannot defend himself, it, and the definition of sex abuse has completely changed, that these guys are able to manipulate this in order to get Ohio State to pay them money. Uh, now, clearly the Penn State case plays a role in that because the Penn State case completely shifted the standards of the burdens of proof of paying out money by state-run academic institutions. Ohio State is in the same conference as Penn State and Michigan State, which I think plays a, a role in all of this. Um, and also, by the way, one of the other things that Penn State did, I really believe that Penn State has caused the Boy Scouts to go bankrupt because Penn State completely obliterated the uh, financial structure of these kinds of abuse settlements. I mean, Penn State paid, <laughs> they paid one uh, alleged victim of Jerry Sandusky almost $20 million 
And he wasn't even one of the original accusers. He came forward after the crap hit the fan. His story is complete bullshit. Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, and, uh, and yet he got $20 million. Well, when, when, when you have no proof of being sexually abused and you're able to get a state institution to give you almost $20 million, how the hell is the Boy Scouts supposed to survive? And so this is all part of the same... Uh, perfect storm of circumstances, but I, I don't think that the Ohio State situation is directly related to Penn State, although it is uh, certainly tangential and it's certainly part of the background for why this has happened. Uh, Sally asks uh, two questions, two very different questions. Uh, have you ever been left speechless by an interview? Uh, technically, no, but uh, there's one I did that I regret is probably the interview I regret more than any other interview I've ever done. And that is that when I was at KFI in Los Angeles, I interviewed the guys behind the loose change 9-11 conspiracy video. And just, I don't, you probably don't even remember this. It was a long time ago. But the, these guys created this bullcrap conspiracy video that 9-11 was an inside job and that people, you know, the Pentagon really wasn't hit by a plane and, uh, you know, all that bullshit. And this really got way, way more traction than it deserved. And two main guys were in studio and I did not handle it well. I, I should have handled it in a very different way, uh, I, I, but I went on the, uh, um, the attack almost immediately, and uh, they ended up uh, leaving the studio. <laughs> I should have just given them enough rope to hang themselves, um, and I started to try to do that, and it was starting to work, and then I lost uh, patience, and it was, it was a disaster. So... Uh, that would be probably the closest to being speechless in an interview. They, Sally also asks, what's the best concert you've ever been to? You know, I'm, I like music, but I've never been a huge concert guy. Uh, you know, I went to a Billy Joel Elton John concert at the Meadowlands, which was pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, my, my favorite music moments weren't really technically concerts. Uh, I was uh, sitting behind the dugout during game one of the 1986 World Series at Shea Stadium, and Billy Joel uh, sang the national anthem. That was pretty freaking cool, uh, especially considering that was uh, Dwight Gooden and Roger Clemens pitching in game one of the World Series, and we were like a row behind the Mets dugout. Uh, and I wasn't even a Mets fan. My dad just happened to get ticket. That was that was pretty freaking cool. Um, I would say, though, that my most memorable moment in an actual concert occurred at the Grand Old Opry in Nashville, Tennessee, where I was a talk show host for a little while. And here's what happened. I had become golfing buddies with a, a singer by the name of Marty Rowe, who was the lead singer of a very well-known uh, country band named Diamond Rio. If you know country music at all, you know Diamond Rio. They're in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And Marty and I had become very close. I mean, we at a certain point, we were probably playing golf three or four times a week together. And uh, they were playing the Grand Old Opry on Saturday nights. Now, the Grand Old Opry on Saturday nights is a huge deal in country music. It's broadcast uh, on CMT, and uh, you know it's got a lot of tradition and history to it. And uh, Marty said, "Why don't you come uh, and and watch us backstage?" I'm like, "Oh, cool, cool. I've been backstage at the Grand Old Opry before. In fact, uh, when I worked uh, at a radio station, our sister station was WSM, which broadcasts." The, uh, the Grand old Opry on Saturday nights. Anyway, long story short, Marty decides 
And I'm sure he was doing this somewhat as a practical joke on me. But uh, so they're the lead band on the Saturday night broadcast of the Grand Old Opry. And he says, hey, look, uh, after our, you know, I don't know if it was their first song or the second song, I need to change guitars. Can you come out on stage and give me your the new guitar that I need? I'm like, okay. And and like this before, it was hardly a, a difficult thing to do. But I have to tell you, and I've been on the Today Show live with Matt Lauer. I've been on every major, major television show. I've spoken in front of thousands of people, you know, done broadcasts all of every type. I was probably more nervous handing him his damn guitar for three seconds than almost anything I've ever done in public. I don't know why I was, but I was very nervous. Uh, it went off without a hitch. I didn't fall down. The, 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 the guitar didn't get dropped. The concert went on. It was all not, not a big deal. But for some reason, that has always been a, a big memory for me. Uh, and that's the best answer I can come up with. Uh, do you have cats or dogs? Uh, I am a dog person, but we have two cats because my wife is a cat person. Uh, they are, I think they're called American Persians. They're very odd looking cats. They're almost more like dogs than they are cats. Uh, I used to be allergic to cats, but thankfully somehow I'm no longer allergic to cats. I don't know why. Um, but, um, but we are, we are, we are a cat family. Uh, <laughs> even though my daughters don't really pay much attention to the cats, but, um, for the record, we have two cats. Uh, would you ever become pro-Trump to get back into radio? <laughs> yeah, right. You cannot be serious! Uh, first of all, I, I'm long past having that option. Uh, but no, I, I would never, certainly not do it simply to, uh, to help my career, uh, even if it somehow was going to help my career. I will tell you that um, the, the left insanity... Uh, has gotten so crazy, and I am so frightened of, for instance, how the left and here in California has handled the coronavirus reaction that uh, Trump in some ways doesn't seem quite as bad to me. <laughs> but then he then he'd lose something incredibly stupid again, and, and I'll realize, oh, okay, that's why I hate the guy. Um, but for the record, you know, one of the more interesting elements of this whole Trump thing with regard to me is that I was actually pretty well positioned to be a Trump guy uh, when he started running. Because you have to remember, uh, Trump and I had met. He had written me a, a very nice note, which is still the, the profile picture on my Facebook page. Uh, I had contact information for him and people close to him. He's an anti-media guy, which... I am, uh, you know, and we agreed on, uh, you know, if, if it was really his positions or not, I don't know, but we agreed on a lot of things uh, politically. So in theory, uh, you know, if I had said early on, I want to be on the Trump chain, I, you know, <laughs> I could probably be in the White House right now if I had, had no soul. Uh, but that's not who I am, and uh, and the guy's a con man, and we're in a very bad situation right now because we have a, a con man who's unqualified to be president, uh, making decisions with no moral authority. So that's um, that's my position on Trump. Uh, has it finally come to light that uh, Leaving Neverland, the HBO uh, fake documentary on Michael Jackson, is full of lies, and that Michael Jackson's legacy has been saved? Well. There's perception and then there's reality. I mean, in, in reality, the, the movie has been completely debunked. And I do believe that Michael Jackson's legacy has survived. Now, it has been damaged. 
Uh, how long uh, and how much it will be damaged is still yet to be seen. But, uh, but you know, th- there is no question uh, that Michael Jackson is still a legitimate force in music. Uh, he has not been canceled. Uh, and that, let's be clear, a large part of the premise of leaving Neverland, and this is, this is always the case in these kinds of situations where sex abuse claims are made, that's what, you know, it's what happened with the Ohio State wrestling case, for instance. The, per, the premise here was that uh, James Safechuck and Wade Robson would tell their full stories on HBO with lots of smaltzy music and drone shots and Oprah's blessing. And then all of a sudden, what would happen? Lots of other Michael Jackson accusers would come forward and then it would become overwhelming finally all, all these years after his death and it would be obvious he was guilty. Instead... Nothing. That has not happened. There's been nothing remotely like that occurred. Uh, there's not been one credible accuser that's come forward because of leaving Neverland. And if you use your brain, which no one wants to do, uh, that would essentially prove that leaving Neverland is full of crap because there's no way to explain how Michael Jackson, someone who's that famous, has that much power, that much access to young boys, could possibly have been a, a pedophile anywhere near what is described in Leaving Neverland and only have a handful of accusers. It's just not possible, especially with so much money at stake. These guys are suing for hundreds of millions of dollars, and no one has joined their lawsuit. I mean, so come on, use your brains, people. It's just flat out ridiculous. So, And look, um, I haven't been as on top of this as I was back when it broke, obviously, in the months after that, but I'm still uh, involved in this. People still contact me about this. There's still some efforts going on that I find to be interesting, that have some potential. Um, that uh, that aren't ready to be talked about yet, uh, but I'm still very, very, very much uh, hoping that, in fact, uh, justice will be done there and that Michael Jackson's legacy will be salvaged. You're not there yet, and obviously, uh, if there is a trial, that will be the key moment. Uh, if there's a trial between HBO and the Jackson estate, which I really hope there will be because I think that the truth will come out. Uh, coronavirus question, how long before the United States opens up again? Boy, this is obviously the, a huge question. I don't have any special insight into this, except that I think it's going to be a lot longer than President Trump believes. And it's not necessarily because of the reality. It's because of the politics of reopening. And, and specifically with regard to sports, I've done a lot of thinking about this. And now let's say that, uh, you know, over the next few weeks, things start to dissipate, which is a big if, but it's possible. Uh, at what point are you allowed to reopen? And this was always my greatest concern in this whole thing was because when you don't put a date for reopening, that means the burden is on you to prove why you're reopening. And if you're shutting down when there's hardly any cases, how can you reopen life when there's still cases? So I think sports is going to play a huge role in this. And my great concern is I don't know which sport will have the balls to go first. The sport that should go first is golf. Golf is the perfect social distance sport. It's played outside and on acres and acres of land. No one comes anywhere near each other. You don't touch each other. 
you can test the players and the caddies and the officials. There's not that many people. Uh, you know, there's a few hundred people maybe you have to test and if you do an event without spectators at first to kind of, you know, show that you can do this without uh, causing some sort of an outbreak. So golf, by all standards, should be the first. But, ball, but golf is run by a bunch of pussies. And they're a bunch of white men who are terrified of being seen as elitist, rich white men. They have no political protection. They have, they have no uh, PC uh, protection. So they, they, they're at the bottom of the pyramid when it comes to being protected in this world of political correctness. If golf was perceived to be a black sport or a Hispanic sport, uh, or a sport played by uh, you know middle class or poor people, golf would be still playing right now, at least without spectators. But it's all because of fear of perception. So if golf's not going to have the balls to be first, I don't know. Uh, you know, basketball in theory, because you know basketball is near the end of its season. Uh, it's obviously dominated by black people, and so it's much more difficult to attack them uh, from a media standpoint. But basketball is not conducive to this because obviously you're sweating all over each other uh, and in theory you can spread the the virus more easily although you could uh, in theory test everybody beforehand so my point of this is it's going to be a lot longer because it's going to ha- it's not going to all happen in one day or even one week it's going to very slowly everyone's going to be looking for political cover that it's okay to come out of hiding and uh and that's going to take a while so you know my guess is that um, the earliest we can be back to uh, normal would be August. And the reason I pick August is because that's when football <laughs> is starting uh, their preseason and their, their training camps in, in earnest. And uh, I don't think America is going to be willing to cancel football. Uh, I think the threshold for canceling football is going to be a lot higher. And so it, I think the earliest we can be back to normal is August because otherwise, because football is going to drive that train. Because, and I can see all sorts of strange scenarios uh, if we are not out of the woods by August. I can see, for instance, in college football, I can see the SEC deciding, fuck yeah, we're playing. Uh, the Big 12 saying, fuck yeah, we're playing. And the pussy conferences like the Pac-12 out here on the West Coast and the the ACC on the East Coast, they're going to go, no, we can't play, no, no, no. And then the Big Ten is going to be a difficult decision because some of those are pussy states and some of them are are red states. So uh, I could see where, you know, partial, I don't know, all sorts of things are possible. But the earliest we're going to get back to any semblance of normalcy, I do believe, is going to be August. Uh, another question, what's your biggest regret? My gosh, we do not have enough time for, for all of my regrets. Uh, but I would say if I had to pick two in general, uh, I would say um, I, I really did not take advantage of going to Georgetown University, uh, both from the standpoint that it's in Washington, D.C., and just the fact that it's college life. Uh, I was not psychologically prepared for college. Uh, I, I didn't take advantage of it academically. I didn't take advantage of it socially. Uh, I really, boy, if there was one period of my time I wish I could relive, it would definitely be my college years at Georgetown. No question about it. From a more specific standpoint, um, the second time I went on the Today Show with Matt Lauer was to talk about my Jerry Sandusky interview. 
And I was handed a really, really, really horrible situation. And I handled that horrible situation. This is going to sound very contradictory. I handled it better than anyone else would have. But I really wish I would have handled it differently because I didn't have enough knowledge at the time. And uh, I should have trusted my instincts. But I was being told by a lot of people to go in a certain direction. And I, at that point, I didn't uh, know for sure that Jerry Sandusky was innocent. And I wasn't going to go on the Today Show and declare the most hated man in America to be innocent. Uh, if I had to do it again, I would have just said, I would have just gone balls to the wall. I would and I would have not told the Today Show what I was going to do. I would have just gone out there and laid it all out, and and let the the chips fall where they may, because it would have created an explosion. And I'm not saying I could have changed history, but it, at least back then there was a chance that history could have been changed. But instead, I stupidly told this. Uh, this mid-range producer that I didn't think had that much pull, what I was going to do, and she freaked out, and that caused the panic, and then we had to do it on tape. And and ironically enough, that's probably partially why Matt Lauer and I are in such close contact on his situation, which is more than ironic, um, partially because I have so much regret about those today, all my Today Show appearances. I feel like I should have done differently and I think in a weird way, one, because I think Matt Lauer is innocent and because we have a strange relationship where we kind of get each other. Uh, but I think from a psychological standpoint, as I analyze it, taking my outs myself outside of the situation, I do think that that's part of uh, my motivation. If I'm getting anything out of that, it's in a weird way I feel better about those regrets. That's deeply psychological, but that's probably part of the motivation for why I'm involved in the Matt Lauer story. Uh, another coronavirus question. Is there damage being done, or what is the damage being done, uh, via the recent precedents that we have set? I think they are huge. I think there are massive precedents being set, and it's not just what is the standard for shutting down life. I am most concerned, and I get into it in pretty good detail in the Individual One podcast this week, I think we are dangerously close to eroding our private property rights. I really do. I, I, we are so close, and we're doing it over something that is, it is not right now anywhere close to a historic catastrophe uh, that, that might warrant uh, you know, deciding that we don't have private property rights in, in a temporary situation. This is not to that level. And there are all sorts of things going on. Uh, including, by the way, this idea that uh, people who rent don't need to pay rent for several months, uh, as if that doesn't have an impact on people who are landlords. Uh, I mean, really? Uh, but th that, that, to me, uh, that goes to the heart of a lot of what our society is founded on, this idea that there is such a thing as private property, and that's not being respected during this. I also think we're setting huge negative precedents with regard to government power uh, and the government is never going to give up power once the government gets new power they never ever ever give it up and they, i mean it is a monster now uh, the, the amount of power we are giving uh, state and local governments and the national government it's really very very scary uh, similar question valerie asks is the stimulus cash the reason that trump's poll numbers are up I think this is a really important point. I mean, when you think about, uh, you know, keeping things simple, you know, keep it simple, stupid. 
The idea that Donald Trump is going to be able to give people checks in an election year, I'm sorry, regardless of how you feel about him, that's going to improve your approval ratings, especially when it's never been done before, especially when the people that you're targeting uh, are, you know, for instance, by the way, there's a new poll out today, 15% of Bernie Sanders voters are planning to vote for Trump, and that's before they get their checks. So what? I mean, the, I, I think that Bernie Sanders number is only going to go up once they actually get their checks that are going to be perceived as being given to them by Trump. So I think that is a really important point and that uh, those who believe that Trump is toast, and I'm not one of them, although I still believe he'll lose and he could get crushed depending on how the coronavirus goes from here, but uh, he is not done yet. And that's part of why he is not done yet. Uh, Stewart, who is a big supporter uh, of my work asks why are liberal and conservative media so invested in their coronavirus narratives well i i think the essence of this question deals with why is there this divide on the coronavirus and it's it's partially because of trump i mean that's what drives everything trump is the bus uh but there are other elements than just trump I mean, conservatives tend to believe in liberty and freedom and distrust government uh, overreach, at least we used to before Donald Trump was the leader of the Republican Party. We're also more skeptical of, uh, you know, doomsday scenarios, especially in light of the whole global warming craze. So I, I think that, uh, that that's part of why the narratives are different. But I also think it's a matter of their own survival. I mean, liberals, let's face it, want this to be the biggest thing of all time. It's almost sick in a weird way. I mean, I'm not suggesting that it's all out to get Trump, but that's part of what's going on here, at least subconsciously. While conservatives, lib, uh, Republicans, are invested in this not being that big of a deal, because if it is a huge deal, it's Donald Trump's fault. And they don't want to feel badly about their support for Donald Trump. So from a psychological standpoint, it, it does make perfect sense, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Brian asks, when will the GOP... The Republican Party gets serious about debt and spending problems. <laughs> you cannot be serious. Yeah, that 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 horse left the barn so long ago. You can't even see that horse. Uh, that that horse is is long gone. And that was even before uh, the, the this week when we just uh, decided to embrace socialism without even a vote in the House of Representatives. So yeah, unfortunately, that is that that is uh, that that horse is, not, is long gone and dead at this point. Uh, Joe asks, uh, why do you care so much about the truth? Boy, I wish I knew that. Uh, answer the best response i can come up with is that it's all my mother's fault uh my mother for some reason uh, really uh, emphasized to me uh, how important the truth was and that standing up for the truth was paramount and that all you should care about is uh, you know looking yourself in the mirror and if you did the right thing that's all that really mattered and what other people think of you should not matter and that has really set me up for taking a lot of very unpopular positions <laughs> thanks mom uh, but uh, once your your uh, DNA is in a certain way once your brain is programmed in a certain way it's been difficult for me to give that up even though I fully acknowledge the truth doesn't matter. The truth has no power anymore. Correct. I mean, that's how we got a pathological liar as a president who might even still get reelected. The truth has zero power anymore. The truth is a 98-pound weakling with the coronavirus going up against Mike Tyson in his prime. There's no... 
there's no chance if it's an unpopular truth the truth has no chance against the popular lie none uh, so i fully acknowledge that but i guess you know at a certain point uh <laughs> it's good money after bad or, or or you've dug in a hole so deep that you just keep digging i don't know but uh at this point it's too late for me to change because it's just part of who i am uh as a a fellow lapsed catholic someone asked what made you an agnostic and, and i always say that as a, a former catholic now i'm recovering from being catholic uh on a good day uh, i'm agnostic on a bad day i'm an atheist uh, the short answer to that is I read the Bible. Now, that's going to offend a lot of people. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, as a freshman in uh, Holy Ghost Prep, a Catholic uh, prep school outside of Philadelphia, uh, we had our summer reading was to read the Bible, which I had never done in its entirety. And uh, I was like, okay, hold on a second here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's two massive problems right off the bat. First of all, and your New Testament God are not even not the same entity. They're not even related. I mean, they're not remotely related. The, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament could not be more fundamentally different in every possible way with regard to the actions of God and the value system of God, uh, everything, and, 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 you know, everything. I mean, you almost couldn't create two documents dealing with the same subject that were more different, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then the New Testament, what really bothers me most is the birth story of Jesus. And I know a lot of people who have, I mean, look, I've done an enormous amount of research in the, in the uh, birth story of Jesus. I've talked to many, many biblical experts about this, uh, both on and off uh, different uh, radio station shows that I've done over the years, some of the top people in the whole world. There, there are those who think, okay, yeah, the birth story of Jesus is not true, but it doesn't really matter. It's intended to be allegorical. Uh, okay, fine, but I'm sorry when you're telling me a story and the very first thing you tell me is a lie. It's an obviously made-up story. It's, it's, re it's reverse-engineered for political purposes that was created well after Jesus had died. Uh, that now you're trying to come up with a story to justify you know, why people should think he's God. When the first story you tell me is a lie, and it's only in two of the four Gospels, I'm sorry. I don't have any faith in anything that comes after that. I don't, uh, unless you've got really good proof. And you know, in my life, I've not seen any evidence uh, that uh, you know that God exists, that God has any uh, impact on what happens here. That uh, you know that Jesus was God. I mean, I'm, that's why I'm agnostic. I'm open to it. You want to prove it to me? Great. Boy, it would be awesome if it was true. But I see no evidence of that, and that's why I'm agnostic. Uh, Chris asks if you could change one decision in your career what would it be this is going to be another uh answer that sounds contradictory but in a weird way it proves my point uh i think that the the, the one decision i wish i had uh not made or i would have made differently is actually both my biggest mistake as well as my crowning achievement and that is going on the today show the the third time with Dottie Sandusky, the wife of Jerry Sandusky, and declaring Jerry Sandusky innocent. 
in in a rational world, this would be something that would be a career maker, even though that's not why I did it, uh, because I believe I have proven that Jerry Sandusky is, in fact, innocent. And one of the biggest scandals, if not the biggest sports scandal of this, uh, this century so far is a complete fraud. Uh, I, I am positive of that. I've convinced many other people of the same thing, many very smart people, including Malcolm Gladwell, and who cited me uh, rather dramatically in his last book in Chapter 5 about the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky case. And so in a rational world, this was a, an amazing thing that I did uh, to, to be that courageous and to go against this, uh, this tidal wave or more in the other direction, go outside the herd, uh, be willing to be run over by the herd uh, for the truth and a really, really, really important truth. Um, but I was, that was a huge mistake and I knew it was a huge mistake at the time, but even I underestimated how big of a mistake it would be because I was not expecting to be able to change the world at that point. I was just trying to, to say, look, this is the truth and this principle matters. Uh, but even I have been disappointed by the reaction of people to that, uh, how much I have been mocked, how much I have been harmed. I mean, Matt Lauer, again, now is uh, somebody who I'm, I'm in constant contact with, uh, you know, very politely declared my career to be dead uh, on the Today Show after I uh, said that Jerry Sandusky was innocent. And I, was, I accepted that. I, I knew that that would be the case. But even I, there's one thing about it being in, happening in theory, and there's another thing happening in, in reality over an extended period of time. And, of course, at that time, uh, you know, I, we already had one kid, but we didn't have a second kid. And I, I, I probably made a huge mistake in even doing that, even though, again, I, I'm incredibly proud of my work there. And in a rational world, it would be something that would be a game changer in a positive direction. But we're living in an upside down world now. The world is totally upside down, and that's maybe the best example that, that I can possibly uh, come up with. Linda asks, in a related question, is there any news on the Penn State projects that you've discussed or referenced? And the reality is that, of course, the coronavirus has killed everything. And you know, I'm getting the very, very, very similar sensation to what happened a few years ago with the proposed uh, planned Newsweek cover story on the whole Penn State uh, paterno Sandusky situation, which was literally a day from being published, but which I knew we were screwed with because we had waited too long. And the guy who was in charge had gotten fired from Newsweek, and we, were, we had no chance of actually getting this over the goal line. And that's exactly what happened. Well, similarly, I kept telling people, We've got to get going on this. Something is going to intervene. There's going to be some event that will happen. It's just the way this thing goes. We're jinxed. And, of course, now uh, coronavirus has, has changed the world. Whether it should have or not, we don't know yet. Uh, but that's the reality. There are still plans to go ahead with a podcast. Uh, so the, the, those plans have not changed, but until they actually happen, uh, I'm not going to believe it. And as far as the TV docu-series plans, I, I just don't see how that's going to happen now. I, I just, I think, I mean, there are people who were totally convinced, who are far more versed in this and far more powerful than I am in this industry, who thought we were absolutely going to be able to do this, but we waited too long 
uh, for instance, to do uh, what was needed to create a sizzle reel, and now everything's paralyzed, and now all the value systems are different, and so I am uh, not at all optimistic about where we're headed on that, but I'll certainly keep you up to date. Omar uh, asks, what are your thoughts on Jim Clemente? Jim Clemente is the guy who, who uh, is involved in all sorts of these uh, sex abuse cases. He allegedly used to work for the FBI. He's a consultant on the TV show Criminal Minds. Uh, he's been very anti-Michael Jackson. He was hired by the Paterno family to further throw Jerry Sandusky under the bus with this cockamamie theory about how Jerry Sandusky is one of the top 1% of all pedophiles, which is why he had no he left no evidence. He was that good. He just he just somehow left no evidence and never confessed and never plea bargained and is continuing to appeal years later and somehow got his, his wife to stick by him and his five adopted children to stick by him. He's just the most amazing pedophile ever, yet he's also a fucking moron. It's an amazing combination. Uh, Jim Clemente is a flat-out fraud. And uh, uh, this would definitely be in my regret uh, category. I was so stupid to believe that Jim Clemente at the beginning of the whole Penn State thing was a credible person. I had hours of conversations with him believing that he was credible because I thought, I I know nothing about this subject. He's an expert, right? He's got to know what the hell's going on. He didn't know shit. He didn't know anything. He didn't know the basic facts. He didn't care. He was totally invested in a narrative that was false. He told me he was going to guarantee I could get Jerry Sandusky to confess when I interviewed him in prison. I did exactly what he told me to do. He even praised me for, for how I handled it. There was no confession. There's been nothing close to a confession because Jim Clemente is a fraud and he's a fraud on the Michael Jackson case. He got sued over his cockamamie theory that the brother of John Bonet Ramsey killed John Bonet Ramsey, even though that is absolutely positively impossible. And somehow this became the centerpiece of a, of a multi-part CBS network special uh, that got settled out of court after that lawsuit. I mean, that alone should have destroyed his career. I mean, it is it is absolutely impossible for the brother of JonBenet Ramsey to have killed her. If for no other reason, I mean, this is all you need to know. There's a million different reasons, but here's number one. So his parents know. This is how crazy this is. His parents would have to know, right, because they're involved in the cover-up, that their son killed their daughter. But they've decided that even though he's not eligible to be criminally charged because he's too young, we're going to cover up for him and cover up our own daughter's murder. And in the midst of this cover-up, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to allow our son, who's very socially awkward and, and is prone to saying all sorts of weird things, we're going to let him do an interview with the police alone. Alone. We're going to let him do an interview with the police alone before we've even found the body. Really? Really? That's your theory, Jim Clemente. That, that, that is... That is something only an ignoramus without massive evidence could possibly come up with. And somehow he was able to make that into a a CBS network series. He got sued. They settled out of court. He's a fraud. Uh, What do you make of the uh, Tara Reid allegations against Joe Biden? This is his former staffer who is now accusing him many, many years later after already having accused him of other stuff post Me Too. All of a sudden now... 
out of the blue that he assaulted her uh, with his fingers back in the early 90s. I think that the allegation doesn't even pass the laugh test. Uh, however, I find it hilarious, speaking of laughing, that somehow the media is pretending in a complete contradiction to their Brett Kavanaugh standards. <laughs> They're breaking all their Brett Kavanaugh rules, because uh, and Democrats are breaking their own rules that all women are supposed to be believed. I mean, the hypocrisy here is off the charts. So I don't think she's telling the truth, but I, I do find it almost hilarious that Biden is not going to be made to suffer because of this, at least not right now, uh, because the media is essentially ignoring it. Uh, Peter asks, uh, who betrayed you the most? Boy, that's another long list. Uh, but I would say that the two most dramatic uh, examples of me being betrayed are, are um, Terry Miners, who was an afternoon legend, still is, in Louisville, Kentucky. He was the afternoon host when I was the mid-morning host. He pretended to be my best friend, my best friend on and off the air. And I got in trouble for making a comment that I shouldn't have made about an ex-girlfriend who was a television uh, host at the Fox affiliate in Louisville. It became a huge story. And Terry was pretending to be all supportive and and even had me on his show to talk about why I'd gotten suspended. We did a top 10 list of the fake reasons why I'd, I had not been on the air that day. I mean, it, we, you know, it was all ha-ha, hee-hee. The next day, station reverses course, I get fired, and by that afternoon, Terry is playing parody bits mocking me and my firing. That afternoon. And it's my belief that Terry was actually quite thrilled that I got fired because Terry was the local legend, and here I was, this young buck coming in, and my ratings were off the frickin' charts. Like, no one had ever seen before. I'm not, I'm not saying this like Trump brags about ratings. I'm talking about these were crazy ratings. Even I didn't believe how insane the ratings were in Louisville. And I think he got uh, scared. I think he got uh, insecure. And I, I wouldn't even doubt it if he played a role uh, in uh, me getting uh, torpedoed there. Now, what's interesting about this is when I spoke to Terry afterwards, I let him have it like I've never let anyone have it in my life. Uh, I don't even want to repeat the things that I said to Terry Miners. Weirdly, Terry and I are now kind of friends. <laughs> I mean, it's the weirdest thing where time heals all wounds. Um, and, you know, you move on with life. Uh, we communicate uh, occasionally he used to have me on his radio show quite a bit but now because i'm anti-trump and he's in kentucky that's not allowed so uh we've I, I can't remember the last time we did an interview but he texted me just the other day uh and for some bizarre reason i don't have nearly the hatred i mean i hated him more than i've hated almost anybody in my life uh the other big betrayal would be my brother uh, my brother this goes back to that story involving my grandfather and the war that i knew was going to end up happening well it, it turned out way worse than i ever expected and that created a whole series of circumstances i can't get into right now if only because of time uh, but my brother completely hosed me in a financial transaction and we have no relationship so i have absolutely no relationship with my brother uh with whom i I was once very close, uh, but somehow I do have with Terry Miners, which is awfully weird. Uh, next question, uh, Kamer asks, does COVID-19 put climate the climate change debate in perspective? I talk about this in the Individual One podcast as well today, so I'm not going to go into too great a detail, but I, I think what the question is related to is, are there similarities here? And there absolutely are. And to me, 
it's partially why conservatives don't buy this idea that we're all going to die. Because it, uh, to me, a lot of this, the same people have lost their credibility saying, oh, we got 12 years left to live because of climate change. And so then when they start to tell you we're all going to die of this invisible virus, people are inherently skeptical. Uh, and so I do think that there is a relationship there, although obviously there are significant differences. Uh, next question, which GOP senator secretly hates Donald Trump the most? Boy, this is a great question. Uh, you know, obviously Mitt Romney voted against, you know, vo- voted for him being removed from office. Uh, so that's not really a secret. It's it's obvious that Romney does not like Trump. But I, my money would probably be on Lindsey Graham because Lindsey Graham is someone who likes to believe himself to be a virtuous person, and he's re- he's a he's a huge virtue signaler. And he's had to bend over, although that might not be the best uh, metaphor given uh, the rumors about Lindsey Graham. He he has had to <laughs> suck up. To, to Donald Trump more dramatically than any other Republican senator. And you know, I mean, you know, based upon his past statements, that he has no affinity for Donald Trump whatsoever. So I would like to believe it's L- Lindsey Graham. Edward asks, what's your favorite cocktail? Um, well, I usually am a white wine drinker. Interestingly, for my birthday yesterday, my wife gave me six bottles of white wine, which by my calculations might get me through a week of quarantine teen life. (laughs) The way, the way I'm going through wine these days. But when things are really bad, I, I'm a bourbon and a Sprite or root beer guy, usually Woodford Reserve a bourbon if uh, possible. Uh, and so uh, as the quarantine goes on, we might be getting a lot more bourbon, a lot less wine. <laughs> uh, next question. Eric, at what point did you lose all faith in humanity? That was an ongoing process. But I will say that the, the Penn State Paterno-Sandusky story was the final nail in the coffin. For that level of injustice to happen and for no one to give a shit, uh, even people that should have given a shit, that that was it for me. I'm sorry. Uh, and that's partially why I chose that hill to die on, because I'm like, there, there's no way. You cannot allow this kind of thing to happen without any pushback. And yet that's essentially what has happened, because human beings suck. Uh, Johnny, will dishonest media outlets ever be punished? No, because their dishonesty is calculated to either gain or maintain an audience. And that's all that matters now. Lying to your audience, if it's a good lie, if it's a lie they want to hear, will never be punished. The only way you get punished in media is if you tell your audience a truth they don't want to hear. That's the reality of it. Correct. And Trump understands this. Fox News Channel understands this. The liberal media understands this. You cannot tell your audience a truth that they don't want to hear because now they have too many options to change the channel to. So it used to be when we were in a a world with four or five media options, the media could do whatever they wanted because there wasn't a lot of other places to go. Well, now there's plenty of places to go, even within niches. You know, there's all sorts of different conservative media outlets. Trump is trying to do that to Fox News Channel now. He's trying to turn One America News into the new Fox News Channel because One America News sucks his cock better than Fox News Channel does. So uh, there, there is never going to be any, uh, except in, in the very, very unique situations, there's never going to be any punishment for a media outlet that calculates a lie. It's all That's what talk radio is. Talk, And I learned this at KFI in Los Angeles. 
John and Ken, the afternoon hosts there, are geniuses at coming up with calculated lies that their audience wants to hear. That's what they do every day. They, they look at the news. They put their finger into the wind. They know their audience. They will say nothing that offends their audience. And they will. it's a therapy session. That's what it is. It's a therapy session for people who want to hear bullshit. And that's what the media has become in this modern fragmented era. Uh, Zach, how can you convince Trump fans that he sucks? I don't know. If you find out, please let me know. Because uh, I've tried this in many different ways, and I have never found a way that is particularly successful. Um, I do believe that in general, you have to go at his, you have to uh, convince them that he is actually a socialist and not a capitalist, uh, that he's actually not rich. Uh, that he's not a great businessman, uh, you know, that he is actually very pro-Democrat in a lot of things that he wants to do. Uh, you you got to go after his perceived strengths, that he's actually a wimp, then not a strong man. Uh, but I have not found any uh, magic bullet when it comes to that. Uh, Joe asks, will we ever have a viable third party? No, because this, I mean, my God, if the Trump presidency doesn't prove that, I don't know what else it could possibly prove. Because, uh, you know, we, we, we desperately need one, but there's no way to do it because the uh, two parties have a, uh, a stranglehold on the system. Uh, will this crisis with the coronavirus help reduce divisions or make them worse? Uh, great question. I believe in the short run, there will be some reduction in divisions as far as people treating each other better. Uh, however, in the long run, depending on how this turns out, I think it will make them, them worse because I do think we're heading for a red state, blue state divide when it comes to how to handle this situation and how quickly to go back to reality. And uh, we're already seeing you know, red states and blue states blame each other. The Florida situation, I find to be now Florida has a, a, you know, small but significant increase in coronavirus cases. The liberals are all saying that this is because they were allowed to go on spring break and the beaches weren't closed and people are being allowed to play golf and they're not being, we're not cracking down enough in Florida. Okay, maybe. We don't know that yet. We don't have enough evidence for that. We don't even know, by the way, that Florida has a massive problem yet. But the conservatives are all saying, well, wait a minute, maybe Florida has an increased number of cases because a bunch of liberals in New York who have the virus are coming down fleeing into Florida. There's an argument to be made there, too. By the way, we're never going to know what the truth is because we're never going to have the data. But the reality is that's, that's an example of how there's this massive divide and how people are going to look at this, and it's only going to get worse as we uh, go along. Um, Kamal asks, what about having sporting events with no spectators? I am a big believer this is a huge, huge issue in getting us back to normal. That's going to have to be the way this starts because no one's going to have the political cover to all of a sudden say, hey, let's fill a, <laughs> a basketball arena with 20,000 people on top of each other. That's not going to happen. So uh, I, I believe that that has to be the way that this is going to go. I just don't know uh, when and who's going to be the first to do it. Uh, Cohiba, I, I, or Cohilba, or Cohilba. I'm sure I butchered that, but whatever. Uh, the, the question is, 
Kohiba asks, will uh, Wade Robson and James Safechuck from Leaving Neverland be exposed as liars when the HBO uh, trial goes forward? I certainly believe they will. I can't believe that they're going to have the guts to actually go forward with a trial. I cannot believe that they're going <laughs> to expose themselves to cross-examination from the Jackson attorneys. I mean, my gosh, I, I, I will certainly be one of those people who will want to be there in person and will be there if at all possible because I just I cannot see how they could possibly survive that now of course the media will report that they did great because the media is always on their side but um, that will be that will be very interesting and I've always said I, I even advised the the Jackson lawyers back when I met with them a long time ago for lunch uh, you know let, can't you just waive the the objections to a trial let's do a trial because a trial is the only chance you have of of winning this thing and i think you got a hell of a shot at, at doing so uh, uh you know because the evidence is so much in your favor uh, malcolm asks uh, can you elaborate on your experiences with mitch mcconnell the gop senate majority leader when you were in louisville um we're kind of running out of time here but very short uh, version of the story mitch mcconnell tried to court me uh, when I was, you know, this up-and-coming, uh, you know, new blood, huge ratings at the conservative talk station in Louisville, and this station was a heritage station, huge, huge influence in the community, and McConnell's from Louisville. So he's wondering, he's suspicious, who's this guy, Ziegler? He sounds like a conservative, but he doesn't seem controllable. So uh, he and some other uh, Republican political operatives invited me to a Louisville University, University of Louisville football game, uh, which I went to. Now, Interestingly, this was not in a super box, and this was actually kind of in a cold night. Um, and uh, so Mitch McConnell and the leader of the, uh, the, the state Senate, David Williams, and a couple other guys uh, who were Republican operatives were all watching this Louisville football game. And you know, McConnell, I, I was not kissing his ass, and he, you know, he was trying to sniff me out. And we agreed that he would do an interview on my show. Which you know was kind of his his way of blessing me that I'm okay because uh, I could tell he didn't trust me uh, and because I was not you know, this is going to come as a shock but I'm hard to control <laughs> so so um, so he's scheduled to do the interview with me on uh, I I think it was a Monday I'm not 100 percent sure um, and I uh, during an Ask John another Ask John anything segment I uh, started about talking about some sort of sexual uh, uh, topic that uh, must have gotten uh, him or his people all nervous because you know this is not what you do on Louisville radio uh, in 2003 2004 and uh, his spokesperson who's now on CNN all the time uh, his spokesperson uh, leaves a note for me that um, Senator McConnell's uh, schedule is no longer available on Monday because we had made a huge deal out of McConnell uh, going to finally do an interview with me. He totally lied. Uh, I called called him up. It was obvious what was really going on. And so at that point, I have you know zero trust for Mitch McConnell. I've always said he is brilliant at chess. He's a great vote counter, uh, but he, he is a bad person. And my good friend John Yarmouth, who's dealt with him a lot more than I have, who's the congressman from Louisville and a Democrat, would 100% agree with that. Uh, Chrissy asks, do you miss Louisville? And would you ever move back? 
I actually do miss Louisville. There, Louisville was the one place in all the places I've lived where everything, for a very brief moment in time, clicked. Uh, everything it just it just happened. It just worked. Uh, you know, and I was good friends with John Yarmouth, who wasn't even the congressman back then. And we did this TV show together. And you know, Louisville's a, an interesting place. It's you know not the greatest place for a, a then fairly young single guy, uh, which is what got me in trouble because. <laughs> Because as as this guy with a successful radio show, there's like 18 uh, you, you know available singles in uh, in their 30s in Louisville uh, who um, you know have anything going for them. And so bizarrely, and this is really pathetic, uh, I was probably the the most eligible bachelor in all of Louisville, uh, which had its benefits but also its negatives, and ended up uh, resulting in my destruction uh, all too quickly in Louisville. But I have fond memories of Louisville. Uh, I've gone back a few times since, still trying to get my kids to go to a Kentucky Derby if they ever have a Kentucky Derby again uh, post-coronavirus. Um, you know, my wife and I are looking for some place to move eventually because California is not going to be viable uh, for much longer. I mean, this, this, is, this is becoming an impossible place to live. I, I don't know whether or not I could ever convince her to move to Louisville, uh, but it would certainly be on the list of possibilities. Um, but I, I, I really liked Louisville, and it's probably of all the places I wish I would have done things differently, and that's the number one, except for the fact I always come back to, and this is why I didn't make the list of my regrets, it's hard for me to say I regret things blowing up in Louisville because if they hadn't blown up in Louisville, I wouldn't have my two kids. So, so you know, I'm kind of like saying, all right, so I don't want my two kids. So that's difficult for me to say. Uh, Erie asks, who were your role models growing up? Um, I didn't have, I, I certainly had a lot of sports heroes. I guess the one that really stands out in my mind is Dick Vermeil, the head football coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, who was super into work ethic. Um, and he ends up uh, winning a Super Bowl with the Los Angeles Rams. Oddly enough, though, this goes to why I don't have any faith in humanity. As, as, as weird, <laughs> life is so weird, uh, and my life is really weird. Uh, so, you know, Dick Vermeil was my hero as a kid. I have a picture, autographed picture of him in my office, um, and, uh, you know, I get embroiled in the Jerry Sandusky story. Well, uh, who wrote the foreword for Jerry Sandusky's infamous book, Touched? Dick Vermeil. And I contact Dick Vermeil to, to talk to him once I find out that Jerry Snusky was actually innocent. And to paraphrase our conversation, he was very nice. Um, and he acknowledged, yep, I have no problem believe, believing that Jerry's innocent and he got railroaded. But sorry, I'm not going to do anything about it. Uh, that's just the way life goes. And I was like, oh, God. And I wasn't even that surprised and even that disappointed because I've, been, I've had that happen so many times in this case. But to have it happen when it was literally your hero as a kid was particularly uh, difficult to deal with. But that's, that's the way life is. Um, Nathan asks, do you intentionally find ways to mispronounce names? No, I'm just really bad at it. And uh, part of the problem in my defense, you don't realize how I do these podcasts. I do these podcasts. No one else in the world does a podcast. I sit down with a piece of paper with um, a few notes. That's it. And then I talk for an hour. All right, with, with no stoppages, which is impossible to do in a credible and compelling fashion. But you know what suffers when you have to come up with names off the top of your head and you're not that well versed in them and you're not good at it to begin with? You're going to butcher a few. So, yeah, I do butcher names and I apologize for that. 
Uh, Clarence asks, will you vote for Joe Biden if a, he has a far left running mate? I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden regardless. Joe Biden is coming after my life. He's in favor of this bullshit AB5 law in California that's restricting my ability to work as a freelance uh, columnist. He once, uh, he said the other day that uh, uh, people shouldn't have to pay rent for three months. I mean, my God, Joe Biden is like literally going after my, my bank account. Uh, and I've never really liked him to begin with. I've always just said, if you want to beat Trump, he's the guy you should nominate, and he would be better than a lot of the other morons that were running. But I was never going to vote for Joe Biden unless, I mean, here in California, it doesn't matter, so it's all just theoretical. But I'm not going to vote for Biden or Trump because uh, they're both terrible. Um, indicated on the Penn State story in a big way, I'm glad he said big way because I, I believe I already have been vindicated by the Mark Pendergrass book and the Malcolm Gladwell book. Will you publicly call out those who mocked you? <laughs> if that were to ever happen, which it's not going to happen, um, I can assure you I will not only be calling out all those who mocked me, that's all I will be doing the rest of my life. <laughs> I will for 24-7, 365, saying, fuck you! That, that, that's that that's a preview of something that will never actually happen because I'm not going to be vindicated because the entirety of society is invested against that happening. A couple other questions. Claudia asks, how does it feel to be so lucky to be married to such a beautiful woman? Uh, well, I've never been married to anyone else, so it's hard for me to compare, but I am extremely lucky. But let me tell you, that luck comes with a very, very, very deep price. Correct. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, so everything in life that's good comes at a cost, and that is uh, definitely one of those uh, things. But I am very thankful, and I realize I'm lucky. Uh, Amy asks, what's the impact of social media on public debate? I think it has destroyed it. And it's not from the standpoint of, oh, we're not civil enough anymore. No, no, no. Uh, social media, because of the way social media works, right? Like Twitter and Facebook. What's the currency? The currency is how many likes and how many shares. Well, if you like something and you share it, that means you that's popular and so popular opinions will always go much much farther than unpopular ones well the reality is there's there's no relationship in fact there's probably an inverse relationship between a popular opinion being true and an unpopular opinion being untrue i'm, I'm in my experience unpopular opinions well not always true obviously have a much more a much greater likelihood of being true than a popular one especially when it makes people feel good which is what most popular opinions do and so that to me is the worst part of social media it has made it impossible for unpopular truths to get any traction and it has made it incredibly easy for popular lies to be uh, accepted instantaneously by the mob and we're and we're going by virtue signaling mob rule now which is incredibly dangerous and uh, to me the worst part of social media marco asks why are you a conservative i don't know it's kind of like the same question of why do i still care about the truth there is no conservatism conservatism anymore it's dead it, it was a good theory i guess for a while no one really believed it i guess uh, it was just a way of uh, you know fighting the liberals um so i don't know i mean it, I, I guess i'm just here to remind people what conservatism used to be in case uh, we ever want to go back to it after this all, whole thing ends up in destruction. But that's a good question. I don't have a good answer for it. Uh, Eric asks, who's the one person you would put on the stand to prove Jerry Sandusky is innocent? Uh, that would be Alan Myers. 
he was the uh, the so-called kid in the shower that Malcolm Gladwell named his uh, chapter in his most recent book about. Uh, I have seen Alan Myers testify uh, uh, in one of Jerry Sandusky's appeal hearings, and it was ridiculous. It was absurd. He was obviously lying. Uh, Jerry Sandusky's lawyer did a horrendous job, as I anticipated he would, of questioning him. Uh, and even then, it was still obvious that Alan Myers was never abused, and he is the smoking gun for the entire case uh, because it destroys everything about the case, both the cover-up as well as Jerry Sandusky's alleged pedophilia. Uh, Finally, last question. Tyler asks, uh, does Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, have a, a chance to be the Republican presidential nominee in 2024? I understand why people think that she will, but I would like to know what the path is for that. Let's go through the paths. If Trump wins re-election, then, um, okay, in theory, then someone needs to be the Republican nominee in 2024. Uh, Mike Pence is going to be uh, obviously someone who will run. And, you know, Trump could screw him over and, and unendorse him. But after eight years of being his vice president, that would be difficult even for Trump to do, although nothing's impossible. So so you got Pence blocking the way there. Um, and so how does Haley outdo Pence? I mean, it's possible, but there's also, you know, that's a long time from now. She would be uh, essentially out of public life for five or six years uh, and very difficult for her to stay in the limelight. So that's a, that's a tough, you know, not impossible, but that's a tough scenario. If Trump loses a close race, I believe Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee in 2024. I truly believe that. Or at the very least, he will block everybody else's path because he'll want the publicity and he'll want to be remain, remain relevant. So uh, I, I think that blocks out anybody in 2024. And if Trump gets crushed, which he could if the coronavirus thing goes as badly as some people think, if he gets crushed and the Republican brand is going to be so horrendous by 2024, then uh, it doesn't really matter who the Republican nominee is. I could see a scenario where Haley would be that person, but I don't know uh, how she would end up winning because, after all, Trump would then be so toxic, anybody who supported him would also become toxic uh, for the presidency. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast, as is always the case. Uh, thanks so much for the questions. I hope I got to everybody that uh, I could. I know that was my promise, and I tried my best to fulfill my promise, as is always the case. Uh, but please, I ask only two things of you in response. Number one, share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.